everyone, and welcome back to Urban Wilderness. I'm your host, Elise Michelow, and I made this podcast to share my progress from wilderness survival novice to not a novice. It's all about learning, and I'm not ashamed to admit at this point there's a lot I don't know. But today, instead of learning, I'm going to not so much teach something as share something I know a great deal about. Canis familiaris, the domesticated dog. There are 340 breeds according to the World Canine Organization. The American Kennel Club recognizes only 167? Woof. The Canadian Kennel Club recognizes, this isn't much better, only 175. In my opinion, I'd say we're all setting the bar far too high for what a dog breed is. There's gotta be more like 400 breeds out there. As for about me, I had a yellow Labrador Retriever growing up and her name was Shelby. And now I have two medium-sized Border Collie crosses. Rogue is my older dog, and she is a Border Collie and Norwegian Elk Hound mix. Her parentage gives her a tricolor double coat with a distinct mask of a Border Collie. That is to say, her face is pigmented on the sides, and down the bridge of her nose and her muzzle are white. She also has triangular drop ears, a trait passed onto her from her Labrador cross mother. I've heard many times that she has a teddy bear face, and that's not surprising since she's always been very popular with children. Raven is my younger dog. Her litter was the progeny of a purebred sable German Shepherd and a Border Collie cross. She's black with white on her chest and front front toes, and has hooded, pointed ears. As a puppy, she was the picture of a black Labrador cross, but now her slight frame and long, thin muzzle give her the appearance of an Ibizan hound at least according to my vet. Both of my dogs were raised on farms and I've met 75% of their parents. Rogue Sire I did not beat, but I was able to see a photo of him and I'm pretty sure I know a Norwegian Elkhound when I see one. At least I hope I do. I'm telling you these details because breed identification through DNA testing is more popular than ever. I think it's a given that if you have breeder papers and certificates, You know DNA kits don't hold a lot of value inside the Kennel Club community. They are, however, very valuable from an entertainment perspective. I think it's just a wonderful gift idea for the dog lover in your life, just because. Now, as far as the evolution of our best friends, I've studied animals in school and I've done my homework. I'm gonna do my very best. Dogs are popular all around the world. So the sample size is statistically, it's it's huge. And I don't think it's anecdote to say because the genetic genetic testing proves that dogs only have one ancestor, the wolf, not foxes, coyotes, African wild dogs, hyenas, or even dingoes are as closely related to the dog as the wolf. That's not to say that there aren't hybrids out there. Of course there are hybrids. Nature is crazy. You really have no idea. So to start at the beginning, which I was told by a professor, who is also a wildlife veterinarian, started around 15,000 years ago, (laughs) Dr. Milton Ness. Oops, just let me pick up that name I dropped there. (laughs) He briefly taught an animal behavior course at the University of Alberta, and it was a privilege to be enrolled in his class. Y'all know Lucy the elephant, right? Yeah, Bob Barker's personal vendetta against my hometown. Good times. Dr. Ness was Lucy the elephant's personal veterinarian. He taught me quite a bit, but I'd like to summarize my favorite lesson by him, the Russian silver fox experiment. So Soviet scientists in 1959 Siberia, different times, am I right? 
According to the wiki, it's still going on today in Novosibirsk at the Institution of Cytology and Genetics. It's buck wild what they did, so I'll toss a link up on Twitter. Trust me, you want to know the details. But the lesson was about domestication, the process of heightening desired morphological and behavioral traits in an animal's progeny. This takes generations, but when it happens with a single wild animal, one generation, we call this animal tame. And the reverse can also be true. When a domesticated animal is wild for one generation, it's called feral. So, but why wolves? There is just so much to cover, woof. Believe it or not, I find teeth are always the best place to start. Wolves have 42 teeth, and if you forgot, humans only have 32. That's including our wisdom teeth. Their abundance of teeth and the need to properly use them accounts for their long snouts. The four canine teeth can pierce through thick hide and hair and allows the wolf to really hang on. Wolves also have impressive molars, craggy teeth unique to carnivores. These canines and molars can also be found in the mouths of bears and tigers, the evolutionary line of carnivora to which the wolf belongs. They owe much of their success to these specific sets of teeth. If you want a closer look, I highly recommend using your own dog or Google. But why were wolves singled out for domestication? A common theory is physicality. In the wild, wolves on average are 105 to 160 centimeters long, 80 to 85 centimeters tall at the shoulder, which means their body weight of a wild wolf population, like the mean body weight, is 40 kilograms. By taming wolves, humans gained an ally with a very impressive strength and size. Wolves are also extraordinary runners. They were built for speed, but also precision. Wild canines run and trot on their toes. They move up off the flat foot pads, and when pressed, they can reach speeds between 60 and 70 kilometers per hour. A wolf's front legs are hung together, almost as if they press in onto the animal's narrow chest, and their knees point inwards, their feet outwards. This allows their hind feet to follow the exact path laid out by their front feet. So a wolf leaves behind one single neat track in deep snow or on rough terrain. So just a little about lack of fear in neoteny. The first dogs evolved from wolves that liked hanging around our ancestors. They love getting our leftovers as much as they loved humans' earliest tools. They benefited from the safety granted by a campfire or sometimes many perimeter fires. Use of spears meant taking down large prey with less risk of injury and eventually, much later on, shelter during intense weather. And of course there were benefits for humans. Wolves helped keep our villages clean by eating food scraps. They patrolled our shared territory and alerted us to danger. Whether it was predators or strangers, they'd use their acute ears and noses, and they even warmed our bed at night. Three Dog Night was an Australian Aboriginal expression, but it really started with lack of fear Wolves that weren't afraid to be around people became the first dogs. So when animals that share a strong behavioral trait, like being less fearful and less aggressive about sharing territory with humans, when they breed, this behavioral trait is passed on, and their offspring have this trait in spades, but also they have corresponding physical traits. So when animals that aren't afraid of humans breed with others that also aren't, you get a litter in which these behavioral traits are even stronger, 
and, and stronger with the next litter. And these litters are surviving because of an abundance of food and safety. Wolves are more accustomed to a human presence, start to look different with each passing generation. This isn't a quick process, but eventually you get a correlation between behavioral and physical. We call this in dogs, neoteny, the retention of juvenile characteristics. So wolves look more and more like their pups with each generation. Bigger eyes, droopy ears, a stronger retention of play behavior, Eventually, their skulls start to take on altered shades. It's not a stark difference at first, but over 15,000 years, wolves are barking and running to humans at the first sign of danger. Yeah, we got some big changes happening. I think I'll stop there with the wolf. Let's talk about dogs. So dogs and our ancestors. The collar seems like the, the best place to begin. I was told in school that early societies like the Vikings or the Apache and Navajo tribes just for example, had domesticated dogs hunting and working with them using spiked collars to protect the dogs' necks from bite attacks, mostly from wolves, but also from bears, tigers, and other predators, depending on where the breed originated. It also uh, led to ear and tail cropping. It gave the wild animals less to grab onto, and as we know, wolf teeth allow them to hang on. Woof. The collar is sort of a common ground because not all cultures have to sled across snowscapes. Not everyone needed a dog's vigilance to alert their village to leopards or lions or tigers. Almost every geographically isolated population of domesticated dogs was different. And that's how we ended up where we are today. With the dogs of the world, 340 internationally recognized breeds, all created with intention and purpose. Since the days of our ancestors, we have carefully crafted and organized our dog breeds. These contain, but not limited to, groups formed by the world's kennel clubs. They are the working. So the most diverse group made up of the blue collar workers of the canine world. These dogs pull sleds, even carts, depending on their size. They aid fishermen with hauling nets, but can also pull drowning people out of the water. They rescue travelers in the Swiss Alps, and their double coat really helps with that. A brief shout out to my girl Mabel here. They're courageous, they guard livestock, they are hardworking dogs, both, um, both brave and intelligent. Training is very important with this group, as it is with them all, but more crucial is nutrition early on in life. Since most of the breeds in this group are quite large, feeding your puppy a suitable diet will help ensure you have a healthy dog that fulfill, uh, has a fulfilling and enriched life. The herding group, the newest group branching off from the working dogs, they have amazing stamina, but are also, also incredibly intelligent with a natural knack for problem solving. These are the domestic breeds best known for opening doors and unlatching gates. Around the home, they've also gained a reputation for getting into food containers and treat jars that we thought only capable of being opened by human hands. The Border Collie. My personal favorite. And they fall into this group. My dogs, Rogue and Raven, both have this breed in spades, and I love it. Their intelligence and endurance are only matched by their protective instincts. Personally, I wrote a paper on dog training in my third year of school, specifically training a dog to herd sheep. And I was surprised to learn that Border Collies are at the top of that category, because Rough Collies, what most people associate with Lassie, will bite the heels of herded sheep. When a border collie, what most people associate with the sheep dogs from Babe, will not. Anyways, on with the sporting group. Dogs that display a knack for flushing out or retrieving what hunters call quarry. 
whether it's on land or in water. These dogs are also very intelligent, but they're a group apart because of their laid back nature. They're easy to train and eager to please. I did personally train my Labrador to fetch duck, detoy, duck decoys, but I grew up in a household that didn't approve of guns, so the real deal was off the table. But I did learn quite a bit about the breed standard during this training. The ideal sport, uh, the ideal sporting dog for duck hunting will have what's called a soft mouth. That means they can bring back your quarry or your kill without shaking it to pieces in their maw. A good test for this is to have your dog retrieve a cucumber. In practice, it seems silly to me, but the goal is to have your dog bring the vegetable back to you without puncturing the skin with their teeth. There's also a variation of this test that uses eggs. Pretty interesting. The hound group. This group is made up of some of the most talented dogs that exist today. Scent hounds, like the famously talented and affectionate bloodhound, but also the fastest dogs on the planet, the greyhound and the whippet. The greyhound is said to be the oldest purebred dog on the face of the earth, bred by the ancient Egyptians to be muscular and light-footed, but also very affectionate. History has named the Whippet as the poor man's racehorse, but there is so much more. Also of note are the badger hounds from Germany, the Dachshund or Dashhund, as well as the world's tallest breed, the wolfhound, bred to hunt, you guessed it, wolves. The terrier group. This group is energetic and fearless a temperament selectively bred by humans to match their chosen prey. They're hunting dogs with a twist. Their smaller size allows them to follow prey underground, whether it's hunting foxes or rabbits, they're up to the challenge. This group is invaluable for vermin control as well, but they burrowed their way into our hearts as a companion breed when paired with a family that's ready for their energy. The toy group. This is a basic classification for the most popular small breeds, but don't let their size fool you. In my experience, there's a very common truth. Small dog, big attitude. Some of the breeds in this group were bred with the intention of hunting small game and wildfowl, but that's nothing to say against them being loyal and friendly lap dogs. This group was selectively bred with one thing in common. They want to be your friend. The non-sporting group. Breeds that don't fit into any of the previous categories, also known as the utility group. I don't want these breeds to be glossed over just because of the title. I briefly adopted an American Eskimo named Monty. He was a little fluffy white treasure. Commonly, these dogs are the Japanese Spitz, but they're named differently because of the anti-sentiment during World War II. One thing all of these breeds have in common is that they are true companion animals, true and loyal to the end. The miscellaneous group. Any groups awaiting approval by kennel clubs, and in my experience, it's mostly hybrids, which is totally fine, it's just that they aren't recognized yet. Mostly doodles, any breed mixed with a poodle. Kind of an obvious mixture from the name. Also the American bully, which is, which with the resurgence of the pit bull, I'm not surprised to see more breeds like this. As far as pities are concerned, I'm only gonna speak from my own experience. I work with dogs for my full-time job, Bully breeds are loving and loyal and protective, but they're also problematic like any dog. I've worked with dogs since I was 12 and I'm 30 now, and I've only ever been bitten by my own dogs. So you can choose to categorize dogs and refer to groups formed by kennel clubs, or you could not. Like I said, I got both of my dogs from farms, and I think I'll end with that. Not much more to say since modern day hunting with dogs is very, very strict. A lot of having a dog around while you're hunting is considered poaching. 
So do your research if you want to include your furry friend in any of your bushcraft endeavors. You can receive a free hunting regulation book anywhere you buy tags. These books clearly state the do's and don'ts of hunting with dogs. I'm working on a hunting regulation episode with my husband, Barrett. He's been shooting gophers on family farms as pest control since he was four years old, and he shot his first deer when he was 15. Finally excited to have some expertise on this podcast? Oh, shut up! This whole episode was just that. My university tuition being put to good use. I'm totally kidding. Barrett never had a dog of his own until we got rogue, and that was the beginning of the end. To quote him, she's my best bud. We trained and spoiled that mutt to the point where Barrett is convinced he will never have a dog like her ever again. I disagree. I believe that from gray wolf ancestor to couch hogging pet, you get out of a dog every bit of effort you put into it. So just your dog loving podcaster signing off saying, however you choose to train your dog, feed your dog, it's all good. But we domesticated them, so it's on us as humans to do what we can for them to live the best lives possible. Thank you so much for listening, and remember to check me out on Instagram and Twitter. My Instagram handle is at Urban Wilderness Podcast, and my Twitter handle is at Urban Wild Pod. Uh, again, thanks so much for listening, and adventure is waiting for you and your four-legged friend. Bye!